appreciate the presence of everyone tonight. Got several visitors with us. We appreciate your presence and hope that uh, our time together is time well spent. I want you to think a little bit about the time when you were baptized. That might be a long time for some of us, 50 years ago, I think, for me. And for others, it might not be so long ago. You might remember it very, very vividly. I just want you to think about that, that day, that night, that occasion uh, when you were baptized and think about the circumstances of your baptism. Were, were you nervous about it? Were you a little bit anxious about it? A little bit uh, uh, nervous about uh, just uh, going through the procedure and, and all of that? Uh, were you baptized in a church building? In a baptistry like we have here, were, were you baptized here? Maybe you were baptized in a, in a lake or a creek or maybe in a swimming pool. So just think about the circumstances of your baptism. Remember the events that kind of led up to your baptism. Did you have a guilty conscience? Was your conscience bothering you about things that you had done or things that you, were, that you said? I've talked to people, especially maybe young people, who uh, would say, you know, I've, I've been afraid to go to sleep at night because I know that I've done wrong and I'm, I'm afraid that something might happen overnight while I was asleep and I would have to stand before God. And, and so were, were you afraid maybe in that way? Were you, were you worried and concerned about meeting God in judgment, knowing that you had sin in your life? Was this awareness or consciousness of not being right with God? Do you remember who baptized you? Um, was he old? Was he young? Was he a friend? Was he a preacher? Now, it doesn't have to be a preacher to legitimately and validly, validly baptize someone. Do you remember who baptized you? Do you remember what was said when you were baptized? Uh, the person that baptized you, what, what did he say? Did he say anything? And if so, what, what was it? What, what, what was said when you were baptized? What, what did you say when you were baptized? As, as uh, you were uh, about to be baptized, did, did you say anything? And if so, what was it? Now, some of those circumstances are not especially important where you were baptized is not important, whether it's in a baptistry or in a church building or natural body of water. I uh, suppose anywhere where you could uh, perform the act of immersing someone in water, that's, that's fine, wherever it might have been. Who it was that baptized you, I don't know that that's particularly important. Uh, might be a, a friend or might be a preacher or might be an elder in the congregation or might be your dad or... You know, so, so who it was is not especially important. Now, what was said, that, that might be important. Because the person baptizing you, if, if he has something to say, might explain why he's baptizing you. And now that might be important. You know, the Bible teaches that we are to be baptized for the remission of sins. But, you know, not, not everyone does that. And so if he said something that would indicate that you're being baptized for some other reason, well, that, that might be important, mightn't it? And so what was said, might, that might be important. And what you said when you were baptized, that, that would be important as well. And so we want to continue to discuss the question, what must I do to be saved? 
Remember, that's the question that the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. Remember that situation? Paul and Silas have been arrested. They've been put into the inner prison. They're in chains. They're in the stocks. An earthquake occurs and it shakes them loose and it opens the door of the prison. The jailer rushes in. He sees that the the prison doors are open. He's about to kill himself. And, And Paul steps in and says, Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And the jailer asks, What must I do to be saved? And Paul answers him, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We we want to entertain that question, what must I do to be saved? Now that's not the only time that question is asked. It's also asked in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching, says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then the audience cries out, "What, what must we do? Same question, what must we do? And Peter tells them, you need to repent and be baptized. Now one thing we'll notice about those questions, in neither case was the answer nothing. (laughs) What must I do? Oh, nothing. You don't need to do anything. Oh, there was always an answer given. Here's what you need to do. And so we want to continue to consider that, that question tonight. Now, we want to consider all that the Bible has to say on the subject. We've talked about that a little bit. We don't want to draw conclusions before we have all the relevant information. If we do that, that could lead to serious errors, couldn't it? And just partial information, neglecting some of what the Bible teaches, emphasizing other parts of what the Bible teaches. Well, we might some, make some serious mistakes if we do that. Psalm 119 and verse 160 says, The sum of God's Word is truth. All of God's Word. So what we want to do is gather together all the information in Scripture that is relevant to this question, what must I do to be saved? And then draw our conclusion from it. We want to consider material from all parts of the New Testament. Now, it's the New Testament that will teach us how to become a Christian. And so that's found in the New Testament, isn't it? So we're going to take all the information that we find in the New Testament pertaining to that question, what must I do to be saved, or how do I become a Christian? And so we look at the Gospel accounts, we look at the book of Acts, and those occasions or examples of conversion in the book of Acts are especially helpful. Those on the day of Pentecost, the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, we find Saul in Acts chapter 9, Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, and so forth. We look at those examples, we look at what they did, we do the same thing that they did, we will become what they became. And so that's an important element to stress as well. If we do what they did, we will become what they became. What did they become? Well, they became Christians, (laughs) children of God. And so if we do what they did, we will become Christians. Did they become anything more than a Christian? No, just just a Christian. That's all we want to do is just become Christians. And so anyway, we, we look to those examples and we draw information from the epistles as well. We're saved by faith in the gospel. We've Notice that as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we are saved by faith. 
Romans chapter 5, another good passage along those lines. Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel. Now that involves believing certain information about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 supplies some of that information. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and others. And so we accept as true these facts that are contained or a part of the gospel. But it also means that is having faith in Christ also means to trust in Him as the Savior. So let's just take that apart a little bit. Faith involves our trusting in Him as our Savior. You see, we're lost. All have sinned. Our sins separate us from God. We need a Savior. And until we come to a knowledge of that and, and confess that, accept that as true, well, we'll remain in our sins. Christ is our Savior. Christ is the Savior. No one else, no one is saved in any other name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Christ is the Savior. And Christ is my Savior. My, my, my Savior. Not, not just our Savior, but my own personal Savior, we might say. And so that's some of what's involved in being saved by faith. But we also must hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 tells us, you know, no one has ever been saved apart from the teaching of the Word. And we've considered all those examples in the book of Acts when people were taught the Word, they heard the Word, they accepted it as true, and then they acted upon it. Remember we talked about the gospel being bad news before it's good news? It might be a little unusual to us, that idea, gospel is bad news. I thought the gospel was good news. But yeah, but first it's bad news. Because it tells each of us, you're a sinner and you're lost. That's bad news. But the gospel is good news because it tells us how we can be rescued out of our sin. So that we don't have to face the consequences of sin. And so yes, the gospel is good news. And so people hear the gospel and they believe it. And I say all that sort of in contrast to the idea that, you know, a person is saved when he's caught up in some sort of ecstasy, some sort of supernatural experience. Well, in the New Testament, people simply hear the gospel, they accept it as true, and then they respond to it. Then they obey the terms of the gospel. Very, very really very simple, isn't it? Believers are told to repent. You know, it's interesting, and we, we haven't made this point, but it, it is interesting that in uh, uh, Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, when he says, what must I do to be saved? He's told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now in Acts chapter 2, you have those people calling out, what must we do? And they're told to repent and be baptized. Got a contradiction there? One person is told to believe, another person is told to repent, or other people told are being told different things? No, no. You see, it depends on where a person is in his understanding as to what he's told. The Philippian jailer was an unbeliever, non-believer. And so he's told, you need to believe. That's where you need to start. 
in order to be saved. You need to come to faith. You need to believe. In Acts 2, they already believed. They were already convinced that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And so what the believers needed to do is repent. And so it's, they're not being told different things. Depends on where you are in the process, what the, the, the answer is uh, for, you, for you to be given. Repentance is a change of mind produced by godly sorrow. Results in the, a reformation of life. No one, no one becomes a Christian without repentance. Can't be done. <laughs> can't, can't become a Christian without this change of mind, without an understanding, hey, I'm in sin. I'm lost. I've been just living however I wanted to live, and I can't do that anymore. I've got to follow Christ. I, he's, he's the Savior, and I've got to live according to His will. Can't be saved without repentance. And so we must change and follow Him. Well, in this sermon, we want to think about another element in answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? We are to put into words what we believe in our hearts. That is, we are to confess our faith. We need to confess our faith. Well, why do you say that, Brother Bob? Well, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, we're told, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so, again, Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you, you will be saved. And so we're called upon to confess. What, what do we mean by, by confess? As we're using the word here in this context, to confess our faith. It just means to verbally express our faith, to ver put into words what we, what we believe, to declare, all, declare what we believe or our faith openly. You see that in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Confess with your mouth. And so it's verbalizing, it's putting into words what we are convinced of, what we believe in our hearts. Look at a couple of examples uh, of what confession is. In John chapter 1, they come to John the Baptist and they ask him if he is the Christ. And then we're told in verse 20 that John confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so, and so he's making a public declaration, or he's making a, a clear statement, in this case, that he is not the Christ. But it says he confessed that he was not the Christ. And so it's just an open and clearly made statement. Similar example is found oh, similar in that it's a, Paul is going to make a clear statement, verbalize, What's in his mind, Acts chapter 24 and verse 14, he's before Felix, and he says, But this I admit to you. Some versions say confess. I'm making an open statement about this. I, I'm declaring this to you. This I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, do I serve the God of our fathers. And so confession in the New Testament is a straightforward, unequivocal statement. The one making the confession doesn't try to deny or hide or equivocate. You know? 
He just says what he believes straightforwardly. Doesn't try to couch it in words that are ambiguous and difficult to understand. We, we see that sometimes. See people in the news, they're asked a question, and they, they talk a lot, but when they get through, you're not quite sure what they said. You know, sometimes that's done on purpose. Now, that's not a confession, is it? Confession in the Bible is a straightforward affirmation. This is what I believe. Sometimes the Bible talks about confessing our sins. 1 John chapter 1, for example, in verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. In James chapter 5 and verse 16 there, James tells us to confess our sins to one another. And so when we confess our sins, we're making a straightforward statement, a clear declaration. We're not hiding, we're not denying, we're not obfuscating, we're not excusing. We're simply saying, I have sinned. There's some good examples of that in the Bible. Go over to the book of Daniel and look at Daniel's confession of sin. Just how clear and straightforward it is. Daniel chapter 9, uh, we're going to begin in, in verse 3. Daniel 9 and verse 3. So I gave attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Now that's a confession, isn't it? It's clear, it's straightforward, it's not ambiguous. Simply an admission, a declaration of, in this case, of, of his sin. In Acts chapter 19, when the Ephesians become Christians, they come declaring their deeds or confessing their sins. Again, just an open admission to the fact that they have sinned. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, we find Nathan the prophet confronting David. And David simply acknowledging his sin, I have sinned before the Lord. And so that simply illustrates what confession is. It's verbalizing, it's putting into words, it's making a straightforward statement, unambiguous and clear of whatever it is we're confessing. We need to confess our sins, which is, is part of repentance. At times, we need to confess our sins to others. We've sinned against a brother, sinned against a sister. We need to go to them and acknowledge that. That's James chapter 5. Confess your sins to one another. Especially if we've sinned against a brother. We need to go and confess that. Just an open declaration. I'm sorry, I've done wrong, this is what I did. I offer no excuse, <laughs> you know. It's just a confession of sin. But we always need to confess our sins to God, don't we? So if we confess our sins to God, and you know what? We might as well confess them because he already knows them, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we just make a clear confession of our sin. This is what I've done. I'm sorry. I offer no excuse. And I'll, I'll not do it again. Well, that, all of that is simply to try to describe for us and help us understand what we mean when we say we need to make a confession. But when we become Christians, we're confessing our faith. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, Romans chapter 10 tells us, well, then we will be saved. 
Now, we're not looking for exact wording. We're not looking for a formula or some sort of prescribed statement. Here's, here are the words that you need to say. What we are looking for is a statement of faith. And we may, in our confession, when we become Christians, as we're, as we're leading up to be baptized, we, we may say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. That's right out of Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. But if we were to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's a confession of faith as well. Very similar to what Peter confessed in Matthew chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark's account, Jesus simply, or Peter simply says, you are the Christ. And so we're looking for a statement of faith. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Christ or words to that effect. I suppose the classic example of this is over in Acts chapter 8. And so, read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. So here's a man, he lives in Ethiopia, uh, he works for the queen there, he's the treasurer, he's been to Jerusalem, which is a long way away, to worship, and now he's back, going back home. Uh, God directs him to uh, Philip, who's an evangelist, he's, uh, he's not an apostle, but he teaches the gospel wherever he goes. And so the Lord leads him to this man and, and, and uh, instructs him to teach this, this man, this Ethiopian eunuch. Well, the Ethiopian is reading from the scripture, Isaiah chapter 53. And the Ethiopian says, well, who's this, who's this passage? Who's this talking about? Is he the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Peter began to preach Jesus to him. Well, verse 36 says, As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So the eunuch wants to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins. And then, verse 37, Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, if you're reading ESV, you'll notice verse 37 is in a footnote. But it's quoted as Scripture as early as the second century B.C. And so this was recognized as Scripture from way, way, way back. And so here's a classic example of a confession. If you believe, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, if you believe, you can be baptized. And so he confesses. He verbalizes what he believes. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Find a similar statement over in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, Fight the good fight, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so, similar idea, you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I don't know exactly the circumstances under which Timothy made that confession, whether that was when he became a Christian or, or sometime after, but again, the idea of making a good confession in the presence of, of many witnesses. We, we baptize a person. When we baptize a person, we ask them to confess what they believe about Jesus. If penitent believers are legitimate candidates for, for baptism. Who, who's, who's a valid candidate for bapti baptism? A person that believes and will repent. Then we need to know what they believe about Jesus. And so a confession, we're asking for a confession 
of what they think or what they believe about Christ. Jesus emphasizes the importance of confession. Look at a couple of passages in the Gospels that contain Jesus' emphasis, His stress on the importance of confession. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess him before My Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny him before My Father who is in heaven. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Whoever confesses Me, whoever acknowledges that I am the Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, whoever confesses that, whoever verbalizes that before men, well, I will confess him. This is one of mine. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. She's one of my disciples. I'll confess him before my Father. Now, now if you don't confess me, if for some reason you try to hide it, or you reject me, well, then I'll deny him before the Father as well. And so notice the strength of the statement. There are only two paths. There are only two actions. Confess or deny. If we confess, we will be confessed. If we deny, we will be denied. Now, Titus tells us in Titus chapter 1, that is the book of Titus tells us in Titus chapter 1, that we might deny the Lord by our deeds. And so verse 16, Titus 1, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And so we may deny Him by our deeds. And so we, we might even confess that Jesus is Lord, but we don't live as if Jesus was our Lord. And, and so we're denying Him with our deeds. And so we must confess Him, and we must live a life that's consistent with that confession. Otherwise, we have, in essence, denied the Lord. To deny Jesus is to reject Him, separate ourselves from Him, to say, in fact, He is not Lord or He is not the Son of God, that we don't believe in Him. It's the opposite of confession. I'll make one other point, and then we'll, we'll close. The confession of our faith doesn't end when we become Christians. And so when we become a Christian, so we, we, we hear the Word, we believe it, we accept it. We give our life to Jesus as Christ. We turn away from our sin. We, we verbalize what we believe in our heart about Jesus. And then, based on that confession, we're baptized. But that's not where confession of faith ends. It continues. As, as we continue to live as a Christian, we continue to acknowledge who Christ is and the position He holds. Go over to the book of 1 John. In uh, 1 John, John is dealing with some Christians who are, who are dealing with some false teachers. And he describes some of their doctrine here in, in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26, we uh, find this statement. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There are there some who are trying to teach them error concerning Christ. They're trying to deceive these people. In verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4 and verse 3 we find this, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of whom you've heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And, um, and so, here are some false teachers. They're trying to deceive these people. They're saying that Jesus is not the Christ. 
goes on to say that they're teaching that Jesus has not come in the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4 and verse 2, we read a moment ago, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so, and so you can see what John is trying to persuade them to do. Got these people among you. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. They're denying that the Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, and so they're trying to lead you away. But you need to hold fast to what you've learned. Continue to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Continue to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. So the implication of this confession is that Jesus has the authority to command us and expect us to obey. If I confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, what's the implication of that? Well, if I believe Jesus is Lord, I'm obligated then to submit to His authority. So many things implied in, in, in the things that, that the, the, the Scriptures teach. The implication of confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is, okay, you must submit to His authority as the Son of God. Or, 1 John puts it this way, beginning in verse, six, six, uh, verse 3, in chapter 2, By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk even as he walked. So the logical consequence of confessing faith in Christ is obedience, isn't it? If we confess faith in Christ, He is the Lord. He is my Savior. The logical consequence of that is to obey. Now that's interesting to me. We talked about hearing Remember, faith comes by hearing, and the link between hearing and obedience. We've talked about developing a faith that obeys, a working faith, an obedient faith. True repentance produces faithfulness. It produces obedience. Interesting how all of these things make their way back to obedience, obeying the Lord. Confessing Christ is not merely a reciting a formula, it's an affirmation of an inner commitment to Jesus as the Son of God, as Christ, as Lord. It's interesting that in Jesus' day, some believed, but they were unwilling to confess for fear of being put out of the synagogue. That's John chapter 12 and verse 42. Even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And so they didn't want to make this open, straightforward declaration of what they believed about Jesus. And so they hid it. They, they, they concealed it, uh, thinking that that would be in their interest. Now, confession is necessary for us to become a Christian. Romans chapter 10, with the mouth, confession is made. I'm talking about a confession that's made not just mentally, not just in your mind, but with the mouth. Confession is made to salvation. came across an interesting comment as I was preparing this. In, the, in his confession of faith, the believer turns away from himself, 
confessing that all he is and has, he is and has through what God has done. That reminded me of Paul's statement, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When we confess Jesus is Lord, when we confess Jesus is the Son of God, when we confess Jesus is the Savior, we're turning away from self. We're turning to Him. And we're, in a, in a sense, in effect, saying, Jesus will make me what I ought to be in the sight of God. He will grant me what I need, my salvation from my sins. And that's all implied in the, in the confession that we make. Well, it may be that you're here tonight and you never have made this confession leading up to being baptized. You may be a believer. You may be willing to repent. Won't you confess what you believe? Just put it into words. That's, that's all confession is, putting it into words. But it implies a commitment, of course. And then based on that confession, you can be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And so, going back to where we began, do you remember when you were baptized? Do you remember what you said? Remember, that's one of the questions that we asked. What did you say when you were baptized? Well, I hope you, you said something like, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is Lord. Or words to that effect. Again, not looking for a formula. You know, uh, some, some sort of predetermined set of words. We're looking for that articulation, verbalization of what you, what you believe. And so what, what you said when you were baptized, that, that's important. Because it's upon that confession that a person is eligible to be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of his or her sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for uh, the opportunities of this day. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather together and to worship you, to sing these songs that we've sung today, uh, to remember the death of your Son and our Savior, to approach you in prayer, to look into your word and see what it has to say to us. Help us, Father, to see clearly the things that you would have us to know. And once we see them and understand them, to embrace them and to cling to them. And then, Father, to act upon them as well. Father, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you so that we might have the hope of eternal life. And, Father, if in your word you instruct us to put our faith in Jesus, help us to do that. And Father, if in your word you instruct us to repent of our sins and turn away from our, our self-will, help us to do that. Give us the strength and courage to confess openly that we believe that Jesus is Lord. And Father, we pray that those who have not been baptized in Jesus' name, but who believe on him and want to give their lives to him, will do so soon. Father, help us as we continue to live as Christians to always be true to the confession that we have made, that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Help us to live according to that confession each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.